thank you. Thank you, uh, David and Vicki, and Dave and Becky. Uh, I haven't heard that last hymn in decades. I have a feeling that the last time I sang it was probably about 74 or thereabouts. <laughs> anyway, greet him. And uh, much appreciate the, the new one too. That's That's good. You turn with me to First Thessalonians. If you're using the uh, Brown Bibles in the pew, you'll find it on page one eight three seven. Before we go any further, let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank You. We thank You for the privilege that we have of being in Your presence, of having the Bible in our hands, having Your Word to us available. Lord, this morning, we ask that You would speak to us, that You would speak clearly to us, that You would... um, move within us that as an assembly we might move in concert with you to bring you the praise and the honor and the glory and we give you our thanks in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. As Phil outlined for us last week, 
This letter sprang out of a deep concern of Paul and Silas and Timothy for the infant church they had left in Thessalonica. Uh, Acts, in Acts 17, Luke records the, the situation there. They had only uh, been in town for three or four weeks when they had been literally run out of town. And in that brief time of contact with the people of that city, the gospel had reached the hearts of a small but significant number of people. But Thessalonica was not the best place to leave an infant and largely untaught church. These new Christians, almost all of them had come from pagan backgrounds, because the prevailing religions of the city involved the worship of the uh, Greco-Roman gods and or the Egyptian gods and, of course, the Roman emperor cult. Their neighbors were pagans. Their family were pagans. The culture was pagan and was very antagonistic toward anything that challenged the status quo, like the worship of the one true God and of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? That's our situation. We feel the same kind of thing here. Why is it that we find it difficult to share our faith, even with our family or our friends or our co-workers, with the people who mean the most to us. Because our culture is antagonistic. And we are afraid of looking foolish, of not having answers to the challenges that we expect to come. But we are not afraid for our lives. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, in other parts of the world, are legitimately fearful for their lives and the lives of their family members. We only, you know, we, we prayed this morning for, the, for our brothers and sisters in Tanzania. Every week, there's another area, another town, another issue of, of terrible, fearful persecution. Um, and these folk sometimes are fearful for their lives, even if they don't openly share their faith in the Lord Jesus. Just to be known to be a Christian is enough to place many of them in the crosshairs of some extremist's rifle. And yet, in some of those places, the church is becoming more vibrant, more alive, more determined to share the gospel with everyone around them. But what about these Thessalonian Christians? It's true that they had had the advantage of being taught by Paul, but only for a very short period. And given their previous pagan roots and their hostile surroundings, would they survive? In a society where human life was cheap, would they endure? Had the conversion been real? or merely a flash in the pan. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy had had to run. And they went to Berea, where much the same kind of persecution happened again. In the face of opposition, Paul was taken to Athens and later went to Corinth, while Silas and Timothy stayed behind in Berea, presumably teaching the new converts there. It may have been months before Paul and Silas and Timothy were reunited. And Paul's concern for Thessalonica was growing all the time. Finally, he sent Timothy back to check on them. And the report that Timothy brought back was heartwarming and a cause of great joy and of concern for Paul. The concern will be dealt with by others uh, in coming weeks. This morning I have the privilege of sharing some of the cause of Paul's joy. So our, our passage begins in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know that God has chosen you. The doctrine of eternal election is troubling for many, but it shouldn't be so. Not that it's easy to hold to both God's sovereign choice and at the same time our free will and responsibility before God. But the Bible clearly teaches both. And we have to somehow hold these truths in tension and learn to live with that tension between them. So, Paul starts out, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How did He know that? What made Paul so sure that he could write, we know? How could he have had the audacity to say such a thing? Well, Paul's certainty was merely the result of observation. The truth is that unless God had chosen them, had elected them, had foreordained their salvation, nothing would have happened when they heard the gospel. As human beings, we are so hostile to God that we question His very existence. We don't want to be living in a universe that answers to an absolutely sovereign God. And when we find that He actually exists, that we can't avoid that conclusion, then we question His right to direct life, His right to call any behavior or choice into question, and still less His authority to execute His brand of justice. So before we can come to the Lord Jesus for salvation, God has some work to do in us. Because we are by nature hostile, He has to remove that hostility before we can really hear the Gospel. 
In other words, God has to choose us, and he has to exercise his sovereign election before we can respond to his mercy and his grace. The reformers were correct. Salvation is by God alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone. And if it weren't so, neither you nor I would be here today. Sometimes we speak of finding the Lord. But if He had not found us first, we would never have found Him at all. Salvation begins with God, not with us. He chooses us and then we believe. Salvation is all by grace. All of God, all the time. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this should give you incredible confidence. The assurance of your salvation does not depend upon you. It depends on God's choice of you. uh, Many godly people try to explain away election, but in doing so, they remove one of the strongest arguments for the assurance and security of the believer. The truth is that nothing gives security uh, to salvation like the concept of election. God is the creator, the sustainer, the preserver of your salvation. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said uh, sometime, sometime later, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he has chosen you and adopted you into his family. You may choose to fall away from God, yet he will not choose to cast you out of his family. He loves you and will remain loyal in his commitment to you. Paul was convinced of God's choice of these Thessalonians just because they had responded to the gospel message. That response was not born out of social uh, respectability. I mean, it was definitely not the fashionable thing to do. But the witness of the sincerity of their conversion was there. As Paul put it, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. The election of God was revealed not merely in the fact of the preaching of the Word. Not merely in how God had arranged circumstances to bring Paul and his team to Thessalonica. Not merely the fact that these people had just happened to be in the audience at the time. No, it revealed itself in the power of transformed lives. And in the undeniable presence of the Holy Spirit in them and in their conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is truth itself. In their conviction that they were sinners in desperate need of salvation. And their conviction that Jesus is the only sufficient Savior. Moving on. 
Verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of, of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In another letter, some time later, Paul urged his readers to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But here he indicates that the Thessalonian had already been doing that from the time they had spent with Paul and Silas and Timothy. They understood that following the Lord Jesus must make a difference in the way they lived and that business as usual was not good enough. Their lives had to become different and unusual because they had to represent the king in everything they did. The Thessalonians received the word. Paul uses a Greek word here that refers to the reception that you give to an old friend whom you have not seen in a long while. You warmly welcome such a guest. And it's a joy to be in their company again, even if their presence puts pressure on you to maybe set other matters aside for a while. You just, just to be with that friend is enough. And they received the Word of God the same way. Remember, they didn't have easy access to the Scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And the Old Testament was fearfully expensive. And probably the only copy in town was in the Jewish synagogue. Um, but they received the spoken word from Paul and Silas and Timothy. They, they seized the gospel with a joy in the midst of suffering. They received the word with gladness. They just couldn't get enough of it. But that brought them into direct conflict with their culture and with their friends and neighbors. But they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word that Paul that's translated here, affliction, refers to trouble that in uh, that inflicts distress and oppression and tribulation. It's tough times. The Thessalonians were under a great deal of pressure. Pressure to conform. Both at the time that Paul was preaching to them and after Paul had been driven out of town. And yet they welcomed the message with the joy of the Holy Spirit. By the mercy and grace of God, they had been grafted into the vine, into Jesus, and they found joy not from being accepted by their townsfolk or their, by their relatives, but by being welcomed into the family of God by virtue of their adoption by God to become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. 
And the result was phenomenal. Word of their changed lives began to spread and the news went viral. Or at least as near viral as it could possibly be in those times. No internet, come on. You gotta, you, you, you either go in person or you send a letter. And the letter might take weeks or months to get to the destination. But it's important to note that Paul uses the singular here. You became imitators of us. You received the word. So that you became an example. Singular. It's not so much that individual Christians set the example for others. The whole church did. Remember, the the New Testament doesn't know anything of solitary Christianity. We are either living as part of a local body or we have been sent out by that local body so that we represent the church in some other community. Or we are working to form another local church in another community. But we're always part of the body. Sometimes we hear people say they don't need the church, but that they can study the Bible in the privacy of their homes, that theirs is a private faith. It's it's nonsense. The, The likelihood is that yes, you can study your Bible at home, The likelihood is you don't. But the Christian faith is portrayed for us in the Bible as a community. People who isolate themselves from the Christian community miss out on vital character formation uh, that, uh, that Christ intended. Christian role models to emulate or spiritual gifts in the body to build them up and help them grow and become healthy people. We can tell ourselves we don't need the church, but that's merely self-deception. The Christian church as a body is God's plan to help mature us, to involve us in the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is here commending the way the whole church at Thessalonica has embraced the gospel and is learning to live as a collective representative of the King, the Lord Jesus. The transformation of these people was so dramatic that other churches were sitting up and taking notice. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This faithful church was turning heads. 
And their faith was having a positive effect. As individuals and as a a group, they were sharing their faith in spite of opposition. And, you know, they were, whatever, whoever came in their, in, into their uh, field of, uh, of communication, they shared what the Lord Jesus had been doing and how He had transformed them and how He had been risen, how He had been raised from the dead. This faithful church was turning heads uh, Paul was bragging about how the Lord could and had changed their lives and he held up the Thessalonians as an example and then his hearers would nod and say, yeah, we heard about them. We heard how even after you were run out of town, the church continued to flourish and to grow. We heard about the people, how the people left their old idols and turned to serve the living God. We heard about that. Yeah. The faith of the church the faith of those people was having a positive effect on the whole region. In this last sentence, verse 9, Paul gives us a summary of five foundational truths that are at the core of the Gospel. Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. Hebrews 1 reminds us, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Jesus stands in a unique relationship with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The second truth is that Jesus will return. Almost every chapter in the the two letters to the Thessalonian church, almost every chapter mentions the return of the Lord Jesus. It's a persistent theme. Now, it may have been because the Thessalonians were having some problems with this doctrine, with this teaching, but the point is that it's important. The Lord Jesus is going to come. A third foundational truth is that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul, uh, again, later wrote to his, uh, the church at Corinth. The whole Christian enterprise stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If it could be shown that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we would have nothing to say we would have no reason to continue. But because Jesus is in fact risen, the whole landscape has changed. 
Paul mentions again later in this same letter. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. There's a, a connection. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything. Everything we know about Jesus, every promise, every hope, hinges on the fact of the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, we can rejoice in the face of trial and tribulation, and yes, even in the face of death. A fourth foundational truth is that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He stood in our place. He took the judgment, the punishment, the penalty for our sin. He took it upon Himself and He carried it to the cross to rescue us so that we don't have to take that punishment. Because of His great love for us, He has taken the condemnation that was ours that we might stand in the eternal life that is His. It's an absolutely astounding exchange. And a fifth one that we don't like to talk about very much is that God's wrath is coming upon sin. And it's not merely sins, plural. It's sin. Because as human beings, we have set ourselves up in opposition. He is the absolute sovereign. And we have said, no, I'm going to define my own life. I'm going to go my way. And you can't tell me what to do. Our age has rejected the idea of accountability to God and even the reality of sin. I mean, a couple of decades ago, a psychologist wrote a book, a Jewish psychologist, and it was it, the title was Whatever Became of Sin. Now, this is a guy who doesn't have any connection with the, the Gospel. And he says, what happened to human responsibility here? Most people don't believe in the wrath of God against sin. Or at least they suppress that thought most of the time. But that certain and terrible judgment is coming. Is another theme of these letters. And Paul repeats the, the uh, idea and he expands on it over and over again. Paul had every reason to be proud of the Thessalonian church. Sure, they had their problems, as we'll see in coming weeks. But the core was right. As individuals and as a church, they were firmly planted in Christ Jesus. 
They had received the salvation that can only come as a gift from God Himself because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and through His resurrection. They'd been living as faithfully as they knew how. and Their lives had been dramatically transformed. And they could not keep quiet about it. The testimony of their changed lives had gone viral through the region. Here's a challenge. What would Paul write about Bible Fellowship Assembly? Guys, I love this assembly. I love how you guys have welcomed us into your midst and you've taught us and you've helped us to grow. I have no doubt that we have the core right. We know the truth. We've embraced the Lord Jesus as the Savior, as Lord and as King. But a question, a question we might be asking ourselves today is, how can this assembly, and we're not a large assembly, how can this assembly have a greater impact on Porcupine, on Timmins, on the whole of northern Ontario? How can we do it? What do we need to be doing? How do we need to be changing so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be ever more highly exalted just because this assembly meets to study and to worship together? Let's make this a matter of personal and corporate prayer. Continuous prayer. Until we see the Lord come. Gracious Father, we want to thank You. Thank You for the testimony of these Thessalonian brothers and sisters. This testimony that comes to us after these many centuries. This assurance that You have given us. That You have selected us. You called us. You have chosen us and empowered us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And You've commissioned us. Father, we ask that You would help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be ever more diligent. Uh, to, and, and more open in our sharing of the Gospel. That no one No one in this city will have an excuse to say, 
No one told me. Help us, Lord. Help us to be the kind of people, the kind of assembly that will bring You glory and praise and honor because of what You have done for us in Jesus. Lord, we give You our praise and our thanks in His precious name. Amen. Team, I think there's a concluding hymn.